Last week, Isaiah introduced us to the servant of the Lord. And while he never explicitly refers to Christ, we can read between the lines and know that this is a reference to the suffering servant, Jesus himself. Now, the appropriate response we learned last week to this suffering servant is one of worship. And we ended our text last week with a song of praise to God for how he will reveal his plan and display his glory through Jesus. Today, as we conclude chapter 42 and look at the beginning of chapter 43, the text can be summarized in this way. God will redeem his people in spite of their rebellion by his grace and for his glory. So our first point is that God will redeem his people. You find that in verses 14 through 17. The second point, in spite of their rebellion. That is found in verses 18 to 25. And then the third point, by his grace and for his glory, we find in the beginning of chapter 43, verses 1 through 7. This lesson was not just true for Israel roughly 2,500 years ago. It's true for us today as well. This text is applicable to you and me in the same way that it was applicable to those living in exile during Isaiah's day. In spite of our rebellion, God loves us. And by his grace and for his glory, he demonstrates that love to us in the sending of his son. So this morning, let me ask you a few questions before we dive into the text. Are you prone to doubt that God will in fact redeem you in spite of your sin? Do you ever doubt that truth? Do you feel like your battle with sin means that God somehow loves you less? Have you forgotten the beauty of God's grace and glory? If so, this passage, I believe, will be an encouragement to you as we walk our way through it. So number one, we must always remember, God will redeem his people. Look at verse 14. It is an announcement. God is saying the time has come. I have been patient up to this point. I have restrained myself, but now I will redeem my people. Now in the context of Isaiah, he's talking about delivering them from Babylonian exile. The burden of exile in Babylon is about to come to an end for the people of Israel. God still cares for his people. He's been in control the whole time. What might have seemed like inactivity on God's part was really a display of his patience towards his people. Brothers and sisters, we must not underestimate God's patience towards us as believers in Christ. He shows his patience towards us daily in that, as the Psalms tell us, he is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, compassionate and gracious. We sin and fall short of God's standard every single day. And yet God is patient with his children. It is only by his grace and in Jesus' death and resurrection that we are able to maintain fellowship with God. The God that we serve is a God of patience. But that's only his patience that he shows towards those that are in Christ. He also shows tremendous patience towards those that are not in Christ. Unbelievers, lost people. 
This is where we learn about the doctrine of God's common grace. Common grace is the idea that God gives blessings to people apart from the blessing of salvation in Christ. So if you've ever wondered why lost people you know or lost people you see on TV seem to be having all sorts of worldly success, the answer to that is God's common grace. He bestows grace on lost people every single day. He gives them great material possessions. He gives them families. He gives them brilliant minds. He gives them strong moral compasses. He prevents lost people from being completely morally bankrupt. Those are all signs of God's common grace towards lost people. If you've ever wondered why God isn't acting when we see evil in the world happening, it's because of his common grace. Because he is a God of patience. He is waiting to see if that person will turn from their sin and place their faith in Christ alone for salvation. He's demonstrating in those moments his goodness and his mercy towards all people. Wouldn't God restrain himself here in verse 14? This is saying that he held back his judgment on the nations until now. The nation was now going to face God's judgment. Now the image used here is one of a woman in labor. So any woman in the room who has given birth can identify with the taxing, exhausting, and painful experience of labor. And this gasping and this panting that we read about is a sign of God's judgment on the nations. And the effects of that judgment are seen in verse 15. As he destroys mountains, as he affects vegetation and rivers, this is showing his authority over all of creation. Who is Babylon before the God of the universe? The answer is they are nothing before the almighty creator, ruler, and sustainer of this universe. He can breathe, the text tells us, and destroy mountains. No matter how Israel might feel in this moment, Isaiah is reminding them that God never left them. Because he is a God who is always faithful. His plan and purposes are always good. God will take his people who the text tells us are blind, and he will guide them in places that they have never seen. He will take darkness and turn it into light. He will level out the rough places. And I love that phrase, these are the things I do. You want an expert in someone who can redeem a people? God is your man. You want an expert In someone who can take the blind and guide them and care for them and turn darkness into light, Yahweh is the answer. This is what he does. He is in the business of redeeming a people to himself. We know this to be true. That's the whole story of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. God cannot violate his covenant obligations to Israel. If he violated those obligations... He would cease to be faithful. And if he ceases to be faithful, he's no longer God. This is what Isaiah is telling the people. 
No idol can do what God can do. Why is Israel prone to trust these metal images that Isaiah describes here? Why are we prone to trust created things rather than the Creator? The problem of idolatry was not just alive and well in Isaiah's day. It is alive and well in our day as well. God's people need this reminder. As they are sitting in Babylon, reminiscing about the destruction of their holy temple, does God care for us? And Isaiah's answer is yes. God will in fact redeem his people. In spite of, number two, their rebellion, the prophecy becomes more forceful, beginning in verse 18. He calls Israel deaf and blind. And earlier in chapter 42, we learned of the servant of the Lord, who was Jesus. But the servant of the Lord being described here in this section of chapter 42 is not a reference to Jesus, it's a reference to Israel. We have two separate servants of the Lord being discussed in this chapter. Look at verse 20. It says, He sees things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. So they have eyes to see and ears to hear, but they aren't seeing or hearing what God is showing and saying to them. Now, men especially can identify with this. We have been told by our significant others to do something. And we hear the noise. We hear the sound of something coming out of our wives' mouths. But we're not actually listening to what they're saying. This is how Israel is described here. They have ears to hear, but they're not actually listening. They have eyes to see, but they're not actually looking at what God tells them to look at. Our parents tell us to clean our rooms, and we hear the noise of them talking, but we don't pay attention to what they're actually saying. When I was a kid, some of you remember these 3D art portraits, and you could stare at the 3D art, but you had to adjust your eyes a certain way in order to actually see the 3D art as it popped off the page. So you could look at something and see it, but not actually see what the image is trying to project. God's response to this deafness, to this blindness, is found in verse 21. I want you to see here how God responds to a deaf and blind people. This is what he does. He says, The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. In my Bible reading right now, I've, again, I'm an overachiever, so I'm a little bit ahead of y'all. I'm in Leviticus, okay? And Leviticus is where 99.9% of Bible reading plans go to die. That's usually where they end for most people. So in Leviticus, as I'm reading it, chapter after chapter about burnt offerings and grain offerings and peace offerings and sin offerings and wave offerings and offerings for intentional sins and offerings for unintentional sins, I was reminded the other day, once again, how difficult the book of Leviticus can be to digest. But then God gave me this thought, which of course is 
not a unique thought. But what Leviticus is ultimately showing us is the painstaking effort that God took to ensure that his people could remain in fellowship with him in spite of their sin. Every single offering that we read about in Leviticus comes from God to Moses to be delivered to the people. Moses is not the one constructing these offerings. Moses is not the one coming up with ways that the Israelites can still remain in fellowship with God if they have leprosy or if they have some other skin condition or if they've done any number of sins that are referenced in the book of Leviticus. So when you read Leviticus, view it as God's gracious attempt to show Israel how they can still remain in fellowship with him in spite of their sin. Yes, the details are often overwhelming, but God created all of these details because he wanted his covenant people to be able to dwell with him. That's why Leviticus matters. But unfortunately, we know that they are completely helpless on their own to be able to dwell with God. And he says here in verse 22 that they are trapped in holes. They are hidden in prisons. They're plundered, removed from their homeland. Jerusalem was made desolate. And Isaiah asks the people, Who will give ear to this? Will attend and listen for the time to come? And Isaiah reveals to Israel in verse 24 that it was God himself who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel ultimately to Babylon. God is not only the one who will deliver his people from Babylonian exile, but he was also the one who brought that discipline upon them. Now we shy away from discipline, but we need it. God's people, the nation of Israel, needed discipline. We need, at times, to be corrected. When we're out of step, we need to be rebuked. God did it with Israel. He still does it with his church today. The Bible tells us he disciplines those he loves. Now, let's just say that Israel disobeyed God... We have the destruction of the northern and southern kingdom, and that just is the end of Israel. That would not be a very good story. It would not give evidence of a God who remained faithful to his covenant people. So what does God do? He disciplines Israel. He sends them into exile because discipline is always the path back to restoration with God. That's what makes discipline so important. Unfortunately, Israel did not receive this discipline correctly. Look at the text in verse 25. It didn't lead to a change in their behavior. It says, So he poured out on them, or on him, the heat of his anger and the might of his battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. The goal of discipline is always restoration. For Israel, it was a restored relationship with God. And for us, it's a restored relationship to the church corporately and a restored relationship with God personally. 
if God didn't care about Israel, or if he didn't care about us, then he would leave us as we are. But he doesn't do that. His discipline is actually a gift of his grace towards us. When people call me out for my sin, that is actually a gift of God's grace towards me. There are times when I need to be called out. This doesn't mean that discipline feels good or that we walk away with wonderful memories of that encounter. I'm sure that Israel didn't look back at Babylonian exile with fond memories. But discipline is an expression of God's love for his people. If he didn't discipline, that would convey a sense of apathy towards his people. So Israel, the church, us individually, should receive discipline as an expression of his love towards us. God does it time and time again with Israel for the purpose of a restored, unhindered fellowship with God. God's discipline of Israel was necessary because they were his chosen people who were supposed to display God's holiness and glory to the nations. So in the same way, holiness within our church is important because we project the grace and the mercy and the holiness of God to this community. When somebody says they are a member of First Baptist Dothan, it should be an attractive thing for lost people to hear. They should see the way that we behave and say, I want to come check out that congregation because the people I know that are a part of that church take their relationship with God seriously. They faithfully attend. They faithfully pursue holiness. They faithfully love and care for one another. Not just the people in their community group, but they faithfully love and care for everyone in the entire body. From birth all the way to 102. Not just the people that are in their demographic, not just the people that are their same age, but they love and care for the entire body of Christ. When lost people see that, let me tell you, they will be attracted to what we have. They will be attracted to the beauty of the gospel. On the other hand, if we claim membership at First Baptist Dothan, but our attendance is sporadic or non-existent, that still communicates something about this church. It communicates what lost people don't need to see and hear. That is, that being at church doesn't matter. Being at church is optional. Holiness and pursuing godliness is only something that really serious Christians do. That is not the message that we want to give. So if you are a member of our church, let me just encourage you today to take your membership covenant seriously. To pursue holiness. Pursue godliness. Gather with the church as often as you are physically able to do. Love and care for one another. Serve one another. Pray for one another. Because when you do that, and then you go out into this community, lost people notice it and they want to know why this individual acts this way why this individual makes the sacrifices that they make and that gives us opportunities to proclaim the truth of the gospel so we brothers and sisters reflect 
who God is to this community. So the question we have to ask is, is the reflection that we are showing people an accurate reflection of the gospel or a poor portrayal of the gospel? Number three, by his grace and for his glory, in spite of Israel's rebellion, God never stopped pursuing them. He never stopped disciplining them. He never stopped loving them. We see in verses 1 through 7 the loving words of a father to his children. Let me just read it to you. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 43. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God. The Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom. Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. This is a display of God's grace in his glory. But now, in verse 1, indicates a change a freshness that has happened. God starts with reminding Israel that he created them and that he formed them. They have no reason to fear because he has redeemed them. He redeemed them when he delivered them from Egyptian slavery, guided them into the promised land. He named them Israel and he promised to be their God and they his people. No circumstance in our earthly lives, will ever change God's faithfulness to us. Now, in the context of verse 2, there is disagreement over whether or not Isaiah is being, or as he is exaggerating in these descriptions, or if they are actually supposed to be literal examples. Now, it's impossible for us living on this side of the prophecy to not go back and think specifically of Israel being led through the Red Sea into the Promised Land. It is impossible for us not to remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who are thrown into the fiery furnace but are not uh, consumed. Verse 2 is reminding us that God's presence is peace in our difficult circumstances. The peace that we need 
as we go through trials is God's presence. That is what gives us peace. And in spite of all of Israel's failures, we are told in verse 3, I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Now what we read here in verse 3 is not something earth-shattering. It's something that God reminds His people of over and over again. Sometimes we have to remind ourselves that God is for His people and that He never stops being our loving Father. Egypt, Cush, Seba, these are mentioned as places where God was willing to exhaust whatever means necessary in order to bring back His people to Himself. If He gave His only Son to die on a cross for the sins of all of those that repent of their sin and place their faith in Christ, then there is literally nothing that God will not do for His people. We need to be reminded of that today. Why does God care so much for Israel in this story? Why does God care so much about us today? Why is He willing to go to such great lengths to deliver Israel from exile? Verse 4 explains it. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. The Mosaic Covenant came after the covenant with Abraham. You need to understand what this means. God chose Abraham before the commandments were given to Moses to pass down to the people of Israel. Meaning, God's faithfulness and love to Israel was not dependent on their obedience to keep the law. Do you understand this? God's love for you is not based on your ability to obey every commandment perfectly. And you know why? Because you can't do it. So here's what God did. He sent Jesus, who fulfilled every command in the law perfectly. And he sent him to die for all of our failures in being able to keep the law. And all he asks in return is that we turn from our sin and receive the gift of salvation in Christ Jesus. Even in exile, because of disobedience, God is still telling Israel, I love you. I will fight for you. You are precious to me. Precious, honored, and love are all perfect tense verbs. I know y'all love it when I get into grammar. Perfect tense verbs mean this. They apply not only in the past, but they also apply and they continue into the present. So this means that Israel was not at one time loved and at one time honored and at one time precious. They still are. In spite of all of their disobedience, in spite of all their failures as a people. Do you realize the ramifications of what this means for us? In the same way that God never stopped pursuing Israel, He never stops pursuing Christians. God's love for Christians is not conditional on our obedience to Him. Now at the same time, Paul reminds us, this is no excuse for sin. 
This is not a license to sin. This is not a freedom to sin. We should daily confess, repent, and plead the blood of Jesus for forgiveness of sins. But our righteousness as Christians is an alien righteousness. You know what that means? It means it's not something that we can do on our own. It has to be given to us. Christians are forgiven, loved, precious, and honored in God's sight because of Jesus' sacrifice for our sins. Now, this doesn't mean that God doesn't care about lost people or those that are not in Christ. Of course he does. He created them. He sustains them. But lost people do not have a saving relationship with Christ. And so while his common grace is bestowed upon them, and while he loves them, he provides for them in a different way than being in a covenant relationship with him. So if you are in Christ today, and you are experiencing maybe guilt and shame over your sin, let me encourage you to do two things. Number one, confess that sin and turn from it. But number two, tell yourself over and over again that the blood of Christ has freed you from the guilt and condemnation of sin. And brothers and sisters, this is not something that we just tell ourselves one time. Because the devil is in the business of shaming us. Of trying to convince us that we are not worthy. So even as you tell yourself that the blood of Christ has freed you from guilt and condemnation, you must continue to tell yourself that over and over and over again. And guess what? Even when you tell yourself that, it doesn't mean that the emotions of guilt and shame just magically disappear. It's a process. The Holy Spirit, in His sanctifying work, over time will give you peace and come to help you see that Jesus' sacrifice for your sin was in fact enough and that you are loved and precious and honored in His sight. For Israel, they needed that reminder that even though they were in exile because of their sin, that God was still with them, that God still loved them, that they were still precious to God, that he still honored them. And when God says here that he gathered from the north and the south and the east and the west, some think that Isaiah is exaggerating, but others think he's speaking of specific examples in history where God did this. Regardless of what view you might take, the point remains the same. God will redeem his chosen people. They were created, they were formed, and they were made for the glory of God. God's grace displays his glory. So if you're in Christ today, your salvation is for God's glory. Your story of God transforming your heart, taking that heart of stone, turning it into a heart of flesh is ultimately for God's glory. Your sanctification, which is your gradual growing in righteousness, is ultimately for God's glory. God's covenant relationship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was for God's glory. The Mosaic covenant was for God's glory. The rise of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom and the destruction of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom was for fill-in-the-blank. God's glory. 
Everything that happens to us in this life is for God's glory. The nation of Israel was for God's glory. Babylonian exile was for God's glory. Isaiah is encouraging the people to remember that God loves them so that God receives the glory for it. If you are here today experiencing suffering and pain and weariness and discouragement, guess what? That is for God's glory. God can use it for your good and for his glory. First Baptist Dothan exists for God's glory. The death of Christ was so that God could display his grace and mercy towards sinners, thereby receiving the glory for every single person that turns from their sin and places their faith in Christ alone. And one day, brothers and sisters, when Jesus returns, all of those that are in Christ and all of those that are not in Christ, we will all bow down and worship Jesus so that he rightfully gets the glory he deserves. This is the story of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation that God has chosen a people to gather to himself so that ultimately his glory can be on display for all of the nations of the earth to see that there is a God who loves people and will redeem a people to himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a gracious God. You display your grace and mercy most perfectly in the sending of your Son to live the perfect life die the death that we deserved, and to be raised from the dead three days later. That is the gospel. We thank you for that message. We thank you that before the foundation of the world, you had a plan to redeem a people to yourself in spite of our rebellion, by your grace, and for your glory. That was true for Israel during the time of exile, and it is true for us today. So, Father, for those that are in Christ, we thank you for the reminder that you love us, that you died for us. For those that are not in Christ, it is our prayer that your spirit would take those hearts of stone and they would become hearts of flesh, that they would turn from their sin and place their faith in Christ alone so that the promises that are true for Israel in this passage would also be true for them. We thank you for your word. We pray now that your word would do its work in our hearts. That it would sink deep into our hearts. That it would take root. And that fruit would come as a result. We ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.